Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our final session together on Luke's wonderful er narrative of early Christian origins. And we have one final session, and uh, in this session, we're going to turn one step or move one step beyond what we did yesterday. Yesterday, we looked at the gospel preached by the Hebrews. Uh, Peter especially and John in Jerusalem, where their message was really one unique to that time and place. It was one where they would come to the leaders and Israel and invite them to repent. Repent, why? Because you have killed the Messiah. But the good news is that he is risen. And we saw that it wasn't the death of Jesus that started Christianity. It was the resurrection of Jesus that started Christianity. And then later, as time went on, the Holy Spirit led them to understand more and more about the significance of his death. So there we had the gospel preached by the Hebrews. But I would like to move on today to the gospel preached by the Hellenists. And these are Hellenist Jews, people like Stephen and Philip. These are Hellenist Jews, but also Paul, and especially Paul today is what our focus will be on. So, we're looking at the gospel for the Hellenists. Let me give you another brief reminder of what we've already covered. The art of teaching is repetition. Repeat, repeat, repeat. And eventually it goes into at least the teacher's head at least. So this is what we have been looking at with Luke. Uh, uh, account. Acts chapter 1, you'll remember we have this programmatic statement that uh, God's presence would go forward through His witnesses and the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then on to the ends of the world. And that's what we have seen. We've seen how they took this message, sometimes planned, sometimes as a result of persecution, sometimes it's by people who we know, sometimes by people we don't know, and all of this comes together and we can stand back and say, yes, God's hand, sometimes seen, sometimes not so seen, is still guiding events. And this builds our trust in the Lord as we see the evidence of His working. So that's, in summary, what we have been looking at. Um, <clears throat> when we did our overview of Acts, I shared with you how, with Paul's ministry, let's see if this thing's going to come awake for me. Wakey, wakey. I think we may need some new batteries here at some point. There we go. Uh, as we look at Paul's ministry, we see that he would go into a town, this is in his first two ministry journeys, and he would target the synagogue first. Now, when he's targeting the synagogue, he's not just talking to Jews. He's also talking to people like Cornelius, who we had in Acts 10, God-fearers. These were pagans who sort of felt dissatisfied with the ethical chaos of paganism and the multiplicity of gods, gods who you really wouldn't want to be your neighbor living next door to you, and they felt drawn to the ethical high standards of Judaism and this clean doctrine of monotheism, one God and one God alone. And when Paul goes to the synagogues, he is preaching to these two groups. Let me see what's happening here. This is actually taking me the wrong way. My forward clicker is taking me back. 
There we go. Okay. <clears throat> so what we find is, there we go, that seems to be better. We find that he's going to the synagogue first, and then uh, while he's talking to Jews and to God-fearers, and then he's going to the Gentiles. Now, we have in each of the stages of, uh, of Paul's ministry, the different missionary journeys, we are given sample speeches. And I've underlined there, for example, in Antioch of Pisidia, we have a sermon of Paul to the Jews and the God-fearers in the synagogue. But there in the little village of Lystra, we have his speech to the Gentiles. And at each in each missionary journey, Luke gives us a sample speech. And what it does, it allows us to conclude that this is the type of message that Paul would have preached when he preached, for example, in Cyprus or in Iconium. When he was in the synagogue, this is the type of thing that he preached. When he was with the Gentiles, this is the type of thing that he preached. So Luke is giving us sample speeches for these different stages in his ministry. And it allows us to stand back and say, yes, we have a good sense of what he was preaching, and uh, we can infer from the examples what he would have preached elsewhere. So, there, there is just a, a little comment on how Luke has written this account. Uh, <clears throat> we have already talked about Hellenist expansion, and here is uh, a point I would just like to emphasize. I mentioned yesterday the difference between the church in, in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. In Jerusalem, it's, it's made up of the family of Jesus, the apostles, the 120, those who knew Jesus. These are the guys with their foot on the brake. They're saying, guys, we know the traditions of Jesus, and we need to stick to them. These are the necessary traditionalists, and every church needs its traditionalists. But over in Antioch, we have the Hellenists, and these guys have got their foot on the accelerator pedal, the gas pedal. They want to go faster, and we find that these two cities have to interact with each other. Antioch is looking to expand. They're the ones who send Barnabas and Paul out on a missionary venture. They're the ones who are thinking, how do we get this message out into new areas? And they're doing it while listening to the traditionalists in Jerusalem. And any healthy church needs both a Jerusalem and an Antioch. If we only have Jerusalem, we end up a little stale. If we only have Antioch, who knows what we're going to create? We need to keep our ears open to what the traditionalists are telling us are our core doctrines and, and, uh, and beliefs, the witness about Jesus. So these are the Hellenists, and they have this great missionary perspective. And what we find is, is that as the movement spreads, that the, the guys back in Jerusalem have to make sense of it as well as giving guidance. The theology almost plays catch-up with what God is doing. The Holy Spirit is moving the message forward, and uh, unusual things are happening. Cornelius and Peter are eating together, and back in Jerusalem, they're scratching their heads and thinking, he shouldn't be doing this. And the Lord is forcing their theology to develop as the mission expands. 
And that's where I have to have uh, uh, an understanding that within my own sphere as a teacher, professor of New Testament, that I am caught between two tensions, both to read the text faithfully, but also to listen to what the church needs and to respond to that. So this is what we have uh, in, in our uh, seminar this afternoon. We're looking at Paul in particular and his message that he shared with, um, uh, with Jews and Gentiles. And I'm going to summarize very briefly in the time that we have the types of message that he shared when he was with Jews and the types of messages that he shared when he was Gentiles. Uh, I have a couple of screens here which maybe I can just briefly whiz through just to show you that the two churches in Jerusalem and Antioch, they were not isolated from each other. Early Christianity was not made up of, of communities doing their own thing without listening to the wider Christian movement. These are some uh, uh, details that I picked up from a book I mentioned in an earlier seminar by Richard Baucom, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and he emphasizes the fact that there were people in the early church. Here we've got Peter, Barnabas, Mark. I'll show you some more in a second. And you just look at where they went. Uh, you've got the biblical references there for Peter. He's there in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Lydia, or Lydda, Joppa, Caesarea, Antioch, Corinth, Rome, and all the biblical references. Look at Barnabas. He's here, there, and everywhere. Same with Mark. And as you go through these various characters, you realize that there were people who moved around a lot in the ancient church. And this is very important because it was this group almost, and um, I haven't been paid to say this, uh, but um, uh, these are almost like conference directors. We actually need the conference, guys. Uh, uh, there in Michigan, Lansing, I, I think that's where we've got our headquarters. I need to check that. But you guys do a valuable ministry. You are this, because essentially what you're doing, you're moving between our individual churches, wherever they are, and you're keeping a shared culture. You are keeping us in contact with our brothers and sisters outside of our immediate districts. And so these guys performed a very, very important role in the ancient church. Not only did they move around together, but they also wrote to each other. You know, the ancient uh, form of email. Here we have a whole series of letters written, whether it's by Peter from the church in Rome to the churches of Asia Minor, first Clement. Clement was a disciple of Paul in Rome, and he's writing to the church in Corinth. We've got the letters of Polycarp, Ignatius, Dionysius, uh, the church of Smyrna sends the martyrdom of Polycarp, another text to the church of uh, Phimelium in Phrygia, and then we've got Acts 15, as we've already looked at. So these, what it shows us is that early Christianity, they kept a tab on each other. They held each other mutual, uh, mutually accountable. I'm, 
I'm watching what you're doing, not because I'm uh, sort of uh, 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 a busybody or I'm uh, nosy, but because we are part of a shared movement, and it's our responsibility to keep each other together. And this is what we see. So there was mutual accountability in the early church. So what I'm sharing with you from the later half of Acts, when Paul is preaching to the, to the synagogue and then to the uh, to the uh, pagans, he is no loose cannon. He is in contact with Jerusalem. He is holding himself accountable to others in the church, and we all need this. This is how we grow. We need people who are watching our backs for us. So, let us have a look at two sermons, well, a sermon and a summary of what Paul preached when he was preaching to Jews, to diaspora Jews. When he went into a synagogue, for example, in Antioch of Pisidia, or maybe in Berea, Berea, what did he actually share? What was his message? Now, time is against us, and really what we need to do is to have a second week of camp meeting so that we can go through in a little more detail, but uh, <coughs> I would organize it, but I'm sure uh, I may um, uh, struggle to organize it on, on my own. But um, imagine we had a second week. We would go through these speeches in a little more detail and draw out more themes. But time limit, uh, understanding that it's there, nevertheless, we can bring out some valuable points. Let's turn to Acts 13. And here we have Paul preaching to the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. It's of Pisidia to distinguish it from Antioch in Syria, which was a major city in the Roman Empire, one of the four biggest cities. Uh, but this is Antioch of Pisidia, a smaller town. And Paul is in the synagogue. He's preaching to Jewish uh, audience, to diaspora Jews, as well as to God-fearers. And as I go through this speech, Listen to the types of uh, uh, the, the topics that he is sharing, and you will see that he is essentially telling the history of Israel. Let me read a couple of verses and just talk my way very quickly through this. So, verse 16, so Paul stood up and with a gesture, I read a PH, uh, one whole book looking at that with a gesture. This was a rhetorical gesture. Paul was well-trained in Greco-Roman rhetoric. So he gave the appropriate hand signal. I haven't got a clue what it is. I've forgotten the contents of that book. Uh, I've got other things on my mind. But with a rhetorical gesture, he began to speak. You Israelites and others who fear God. So those are the Gentiles who've moved towards Judaism. Listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance for about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until the time of the prophet Samuel, and then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin who reigned for 40 years. Now, let me just stop there and uh, pause. What is Paul recounting? He's recounting the main events which 
uh, from Israel's history, which we would expect any child who went to the synagogue to know. He's not giving a detailed history, but he's picking the main events, the exodus, coming out of Egypt, uh, the, the period in Canaan under the judges, the choosing of a king, and then our first king, Saul, uh, who, unfortunately, the Lord had to remove. And he's telling this story very briefly, but with intimations that not everything was right all the way through. Uh, sometimes the Lord had to be a little more patient with his people than at other times. So he's recounting Israel's history. Then we move on in verse 22. When he had removed him, Saul, he made David their king. In his testimony about him, he said, I have found David, son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart, who will carry out all my wishes. Of this man's posterity, that means just one of his descendants, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Uh, now, let me just pause there. So, what is he doing now? He's highlighting Maybe one of the main heroes, along with Abraham, Moses, and then David, these were the three great uh, Old Testament characters uh, who figured most prominently in Israel's history. So he's taking us through this history, and he's come to David, and this is when Israel was at her greatest, but yet we needed a Savior. And he refers to this prophecy that one day, one of David's descendants would come, and lo and behold, he has. We have the Savior, Jesus. And now he jumps. He jumps over the, ex the exile story to Babylon, and he skips straight over, maybe, I mean, we're, we're talking about hundreds of years, to John the Baptist, verse 24. So now he's talking about uh, events uh, closer to the time, maybe 20, 30 years before Paul preached this. And uh, uh, you might ask, well, would people in Antioch of Pisidia have known this? I would suggest yes. Every year, the Jerusalem authorities would send out rabbis to the Diaspora Jews, informing them, updating them on what was going on back in Jerusalem, uh, doing preaching campaigns, rather like we have campaigns. And um, they would have been quite familiar with these details. So let me read, before his coming, verse 24, John had already proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his work, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but the one is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of the sandals of his feet. So there we have a summary of the message of John the Baptist. And the key point is, is that John the Baptist is saying, I am not the one prophesied to David. Not me. No, no, no. And you think, well, why so? And the reason is, is that with the coming of Jesus, the, the disciples of John the Baptist didn't disappear. They spread and they took their message about John the Baptist around the diaspora. And uh, even today we have followers of John the Baptist. They haven't disappeared. And uh, uh, here, Paul is really just saying John the Baptist was actually pointing forward to someone greater, and that is Jesus. So now we move to verse 26, and I am just running through my outline here. 
And you will note by now that he is talking to Jews and he's talking to them in a language they would understand. He's describing their history. My brothers, you descendants of Abraham's family and others who fear God. So he knows he's got a mixed audience. He knows he's got some Gentile God-fearers. He's not excluding them to us. And now he moves on to describe what happened to Jesus. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent because the residents of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize him or understand the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled those words by condemning him, even though he found no cause for a sentence of death. Uh, they found. They asked Pilate to have him killed when they had carried out everything that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to the people. Let me pause. What is Paul sharing here? He is sharing the message I shared with you yesterday, what they preached in Jerusalem. What they preached in Jerusalem was, you guys have killed the Messiah. You have been in rebellion and conspired against the Lord and His anointed. What do you need to do? You need to repent. And Paul is really summarizing that message. So we can see that he, uh, he is listening to what the Jerusalem witnesses, those, those guys who hold precious the traditions of Jesus and who were eyewitnesses, he's not discarding them. He is providing that message in summary form here. So there we have his summary of what we looked at yesterday. Verse 32, and now he's going to go on an extended Bible study, quoting from a series of Old Testament passages. He's using rabbinic exegesis uh, techniques. He's using verse, uh, verses where they'll have a word in common. This was a traditional rabbinic way of reading uh, uh, the, the uh, Old Testament and constructing an argument. And here we go, verse 42. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have forgotten you. This is, I don't have time to explain in detail his argument, but just notice what he's doing. He's talking to Jews, they have scriptures, they know the scriptures off by heart, and he's quoting to them the traditions, the sources of authority that they hold dear. Verse 34, as to his raising from the dead, Jesus is raising from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy promises made to David. Another quote from the Old Testament. Therefore, he has also said in another psalm, you will not let your holy one experience corruption. Psalm 16 verse 10. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, died, was laid beside his ancestors and experienced corruption. And maybe some of his audience had actually been to Jerusalem and seen David's tomb. You could go and see his tomb. And what Paul is saying is, hey, look, God was giving these promises to David, but we know they weren't fulfilled in, in David's life. So they, they weren't fulfilled in David's life. In whose life were they fulfilled? In the life of of Jesus. 
Jesus of Nazareth. Let it be known, therefore, and now he's coming to his conclusion, to his appeal, to you, therefore, my brothers, that though through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, by this Jesus everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Ah, we didn't get this with Peter in in Jerusalem. Here, Paul is thinking, what is the purpose of Jesus' ministry? Uh, he, he's preaching a new angle on the life of Jesus. He's making it relevant for Diaspora Jews. This is a problem that Diaspora Jews have. Back in Jerusalem, their problem was, was that they had killed the Messiah. Here, these Diaspora Jews, and I would suggest it's not Diaspora Jews, but it's all of us, have a problem, if we're really honest in keeping the law uh, to uh, the full extent. And so, Jesus is the one who is able to free us uh, uh, by which you couldn't from sins where the law maybe hasn't been able to do it. Beware, therefore, that what the prophets said does not happen to you. Look, and now he quotes from one of the prophets, you scoffers, be amazed and perish. For in your days I am doing a work, a work that you will never believe, even if someone tells you. Quite an ending. So what we find here is that Paul is using their scriptures, our scriptures. He's using scriptures that they are familiar with, and he is talking their history. He is talking their culture. Uh, If we go to one more example, we have in Acts chapter 17, Paul preaching in the synagogue in Thessalonica. It's just a summary, but let me read it through because it reinforces this same approach. We see a consistency with Paul. Verse 1, after Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in as was his custom. He was a Sabbath keeper, and he went to the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, argued with them from the Scriptures. He's using the authority that they respect from the Scriptures, and he's given them a very, very detailed Bible study, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. They wouldn't have thought that. They didn't think it, that the Messiah would be killed. So he's having to show, look, guys, there's some passages which maybe we've neglected and maybe we need to spend some more time thinking about. And so he's giving them a Bible study showing that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So we have, we have some of the, of the uh, uh, God-fearers also responding. So it has been suggested that maybe Paul, over the three Sabbaths, firstly, he's giving them a Bible study about how uh, it's necessary that the Messiah actually suffer and die. And then maybe on the next Sabbath, he's telling them the story of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection. And then on the final Sabbath, he's linking the two and bringing out implications and making a final appeal. Maybe something along those lines. But again, it's a similar approach to what we had in chapter 13. So there we have Paul's approach when he's with the 
with the, uh, with the Jews and the God-fearers. But when we move to Paul preaching to pagans, these are not God-fearing pagans, but these are out-and-out pagans who follow all the pantheon of the gods and keep their pagan festivals. Then we find that Paul has a slightly different approach. Let me take you to Acts 14, and you will not contrast, as I take you through the story, how instead of preaching Scripture, and instead of preaching about Jesus, he actually gives a different line of argument. This is the, the incident in Lystra. It was just a, a small, small town village. Paul had been chased out of Iconium, and so he's really going into somewhere where he hopes to attract maybe a little less attention. And uh, uh, he goes into this village in Lystra, and he sees there a man who has been crippled from birth. He sees that the man has faith, and Paul, he heals them, at which point the crowds rush together, and they proclaim, Barnabas, he is Zeus, and Paul, he is Hermes. And um, historians tell us that within Icon uh, Lystra's history, that uh, Barnabas, uh, Zeus and Hermes had actually uh, appeared there in the town previously, and they were looking forward to their return. And so they were expecting the return of these gods. And so they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas, at which point Paul and Barnabas say, hang on, guys, stop, 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 stop. No way, not to do that. And so then Paul shares this very brief message, verse 15. Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you. And we bring you good news that you should turn away from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good. He kept his witness amongst you. And what was that? Giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. And then we find the, the crowd's response. And very simply, what is this message? This message is, in this message, Paul doesn't quote the Scriptures. He doesn't open the Old Testament. He doesn't quote the psalmist or the prophets or the law of Moses. Instead, he, he is moving them, not from, uh, uh, as we find with the Jews, making them believers in Jesus, but instead he's moving them from believers in all the gods, and he's saying, guys, turn away from all these worthless goods, uh, uh, gods and goods and become fol a follower of the one creator God. This is his message. It's got a different flavor from what he preached in the synagogue. Let me turn to another sermon, which is very, very similar. And this is Paul's sermon to the philosophers in Athens. And we read in chapter 17, verse 18, that there was two groups, some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers who debated with him. And uh, maybe I can just give a, a potted summary of what these two groups believe. The Epicureans, they were followers of the philosopher Epicurus. And Epicurus he read the pagan accounts of the gods, and he said, these gods are, oh boy, oh, these gods, you know, 
when you live, all you do is live in fear with them. And so he rewrote the story, and he said, the gods are actually, uh, unlike the stories, they're actually perfect, and they live up in the heavens, and they're so perfect, and they're so happy that they never bother us. And it means that we can live without fear of judgment. Do whatever you want. You can live your life without living in fear of the gods. So essentially what he did, if you think of the world as a block of flats with us down here and the gods up here, he shoved them to the top story. And he said, the good news is, is that the elevator is broken. They never come down. And he, uh, he wrote, uh, uh, or his uh, followers wrote a lot of stuff about how when you look at the world, gods aren't involved. When you look at thunder and earthquakes and uh, uh, all the natural phenomena, he said, we can find purely natural explanations. And um, some have suggested that modern Westerners, most of us, whether we like it or not, are actually closet Epicureans. I look at my own way I think, and I have to confess that, Lord, you know, maybe you need to change my thinking because I've been influenced by my wider culture. All of us are, whether we like it or not, and most of us are Epicureans. We always seek a natural explanation before we seek a spiritual explanation. That puts us into the Epicurean camp. The Stoics were the opposite. Instead of the gods being shoved to the top uh, floor of the block of flats, for them, God was in everything and everything. They were pantheists, and they believed that God was very rational, and they had the Logos. The Logos is God, and He is in everything. He's in these beautiful flowers. He's in the table. He's in my, well, still quite beautiful little MacBook. Uh, He's in me, and if I'm going to live true to God, and remember that I'm part of God because we're pantheists, then I have to live true to reason, and their emphasis was on the presence and the closeness of God. Uh, He is in me, and I am Him. And uh, uh, for them, their spirituality was all about living according to reason. God is reason. He's in me. I am Him. And as long as I have a good reason for everything I do, then uh, I am living true to to this divine pervasive presence. It actually resulted in a very harsh ethics. It means that uh, when your mother or father passes away or your daughter uh, or son dies, uh, they said, uh, you know, you shouldn't actually grieve over it. You knew that they were going to die, and you need to be rational about this and not get overly emotional. So it ended up with uh, a very harsh uh, ethics. And these were the Epicureans and Stoics. And most people in the Roman world were Stoics, with a few Epicureans. Today, most people are Epicureans in the West, with a few New Age Stoics. So, very similar. And what I'm going to do is just briefly read a couple of verses from Paul's uh, his speech. And um, as I go through, I will highlight what he's doing. He's contradicting the Epicureans at one point and the Stoics at another, but he's also affirming some things as well. Note how he doesn't quote the Bible either. He's quoting not from the Bible, but he's quoting from their own poets and from their own writers. Verse 22, Paul stood up in front of the Areopagus and said, This is Acts 17, verse 22, and he said this, Athenians, 
I see how extremely religious you are in every way, for I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects in your worship. I found them uh, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. They had these uh, uh, altars which maybe had either been damaged during war or vandalized where they weren't sure who they were dedicated to, and they had uh, 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 attributed to this a tradition that it was to an unknown God. You know, we are worshiping 999 gods, uh, but what happens if there's one which we've missed, and he's the one who, if we miss, would get angry and punish us? So they had, it was like an insurance policy. Uh, so I'm going to explain your insurance policy, is what Paul is saying. Then, and now he comes to the heart of his argument the God who made the world and everything in it. This is very Old Testament picture of God the Creator. So he is not giving up on a biblical worldview. He is speaking through his biblical worldview to them, but in their context. So the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. At that point, the Epicureans are saying, wise Paul, wise Paul, we know that the gods don't live down here, they're upstairs. Oh yes, they don't live in the temples. No, you're right on there, Paul. Uh, and now he carries on. Verse 26, from one ancestor he has made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he has allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they should live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for Him and find Him, though indeed He is not far from each one of us. Let me just pause. At this point, the Epicureans are saying, what? You mean He's not far from us? No, 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 Paul, you got that wrong. At this point, the Stoics are clapping and saying, yes, God is right close to us, and He is near from us. And so he actually quotes from some of the Stoic uh, philosophers, uh, verse 28, for in Him we live and move and have our being. That was actually well known, that little saying, throughout the ancient world. All kids learned that at school. It was in their textbook for studying the stars, as even some of our Cretan poets have said. And here he is quoting Cleanthes, who is a Stoic uh, philosopher, for we too are his offspring. So what has he done? He's just addressed both groups. He's affirmed something in both groups' worldviews, but he's also challenged both groups. And now he comes on to his main point. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. This is the traditional Jewish critique of polytheism. Don't follow idols. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then we have the response. And essentially what Paul is saying here, he's saying there is, Stoics, a difference between the world and the Creator God. You got that one wrong, but he is close. You got that one right. Epicureans, uh, you've got it right that he doesn't just dwell in temples down here, so you're right on that. 
But you are wrong. He holds us accountable, and we do need to watch how we live. One day there will be judgment, and that was news to both Stoic and, and Epicurean. And who is going to judge? And did you notice how he describes him? It's, we're going to be judged by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We are not even told his name not even given his name, just a man who was dead and is alive. Now, we know, because we've read the rest of Luke and Acts, we know who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus, our Lord and Savior. But for them, he is simply couching it according to what they know. And essentially what he's doing, he's doing the same thing he did in chapter 14 in, in, uh, uh, in uh, Lystra, where he called them to move away from belief, uh, these two belief systems, to belief in the one creator God. And this is where I need to summarize what we've got going on here. Essentially, when Paul comes to, I would suggest, three steps, and uh, I hope this isn't too confusing, but um, he's got three steps uh, he creates an interest. He did this in chapter 14 where he healed the man. That's a great way to start an evangelistic campaign is heal someone who's been lame from birth. So it gathers a crowd, but he's talking to polytheists. And in chapters 14 and 17 in the two sermons we've just looked at, his job is not to make them into believers in Jesus at this point. Instead, his purpose is to make them monotheists, is to get them to turn away from their pagan gods. And he's saying, turn away from those gods. When he comes to monotheists, to God-fearers, and to Jews in the synagogue, he goes a step further with these guys. He doesn't need to make them into monotheists. Why? They are already monotheists. And with the monotheists, he can turn them into followers of Jesus. And this is a necessary process. If he were to go along to the pagan and to proclaim to them that Jesus is the third member of the Trinity, or the second member, however we divide it, the Son of God, they would say, oh, right, you follow him as a God. Fine, we will follow him as a God, and uh, we will add him to all the other gods that we worship. What he first has to do is to get them to turn away from their polytheism. And this is what he does in chapter 14 and chapter 17 when he's turning, talking to Gentiles. So what we find is, is that his approach is contextual. When he's with Jews, he's moving them from monotheism to Christianity. When he's with pagan polytheists. He doesn't go directly to Christianity. Instead, he has to take this necessary step. He has to get them to turn away from their gods before he's able to get them to believe in Jesus. And this is, uh, gives us a pattern for evangelism. This is the flexibility of the Hellenists. They're out there meeting different groups, and they know that they need to share something with one group, but maybe another thing with another group. And Paul actually shares that this is his philosophy. First Corinthians 9, he says that I am free with respect to all. I've made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. When he's in the synagogue, he uses the law. Uh, 
And then he says that when he's with the Gentiles, those who aren't under the law, I made myself as one of them. This is incarnational ministry. He becomes a Jew to the Jews, and he becomes a Gentile to the Gentiles. And the accusation was Paul was flip-floppy. He says, whatever he wants to say according to the situation, I say no. I defend Paul, and I thank Paul because he is sensitive to where the people were. And this is the heart of someone who cares about people, where they realize that the truth cannot all be given in one dose, but it needs to be given slowly according to where the person is. This is the gospel of the Hellenists. They preach one thing in the synagogue and one thing in with the pagans, and it reveals a heart which is willing to put some of the beliefs just to the side for a while in order to deal with the person where they are. And that, for me, reveals not just Paul's heart, but also the heart of Jesus. It's one who comes to us and ministers to us in our context, and He deals with us in, at our level, and He deals with us with the ways of thinking, whether it's Epicureanism or Stoicism or just out-and-out -out polytheism. He comes along and He changes those ways of thinking, and He allows us time to grow into truth. And it means that we as churches here in Michigan, we need to be patient because some churches might be ministering primarily to a synagogue context. Other churches might primarily be ministering in Athens to the Epicureans and Stoics. And it means that we need to have a certain patience amongst ourselves to allow God to use us to talk the appropriate message to the audiences that He has brought into contact. Let us pray as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that You sent Paul, this wonderful apostle that You called, and You sent him to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to the kings, each who have their different messages that they need to hear from You. And I pray that we as a church, Lord, will have a heart for evangelism, that we will allow each other the flexibility to uh, give these messages that you give to the different audiences that we encounter in this increasingly diverse world. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.